So, yeah, we talked to Rod Blagojevich. For about 40 minutes, 23 days after his release from federal prison, uh, Rod Blagojevich, in addition to being a husband and father of two daughters, uh, served as the 40th governor of Illinois from 2003 until his impeachment, conviction, and removal from office in 2009. I'm basically uh, reading his uh, Wikipedia page here. He is a retired American politician and convicted felon. Uh, he was elected governor in 2002 and won re-election in 2006. He was impeached and removed from office for corruption, being convicted of soliciting bribes for political appointments, including Barack Obama's vacant U.S. Senate seat after Obama was elected president in 2008. Uh, Rod Blagojevich, our guest today, was convicted and sentenced to 14 years in federal prison. And on February 18th of 2020, President Donald Trump commuted his sentence after Rod served about eight years which ended his sentence about six years early. Since our show is very much a Christian entity that doesn't deal with politics, in fact, we go to great lengths to avoid talking about politics because we just don't feel like it. We don't feel like generally that's why people tune into us. And today's show is really no different. We talk to him mostly about Jesus and a little bit about food. So let's get on with it. Here's our 40-minute chat with former Illinois Governor Rod Lagojevich, which we recorded just 23 days after his release from federal prison. Hello, how are you? Is this Jonathan? This is Jonathan and Lindsay. Yeah, morning. Hi, good morning, Lindsay. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for being on with us. God bless you, brother. God bless you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Well, just by way of setup, um, so I think some of our listeners might say it's a tad bizarre to have Rod Blagojevich appear on this show um, with our mission statement being, you know, sharing hope in Jesus, one song, one conversation, one heart at a time. Uh, we want to talk in a minute about kind of the role that God plays in your life today. But first, we would love to know kind of along the lines of what would you say to people who might even say, you know, I hate Rod Lagojevich, but yet they follow this Christian ideology of God where we're told by our leader to love your neighbor as yourself. But that's a good question. Uh, you know, that's a question that I would repeatedly ask myself and still do uh, because, you know, my Christian faith not only... Uh, uh, informs me to not hate anybody, but it requires me to be forgiving. And forgiveness is, you know, easy in theory, but in practice, after you feel you've been harmed, and in my case, I, I continue to insist, and I know I'm right, I was sent to prison for practicing politics, not for any crimes. And so one of the challenges I had to face during my almost eight years away was, particularly in the early time, was to get over the anger and to try to keep myself from being bitter. And among the many things uh, reading the Bible did for me was to give me a better perspective on you know, what I was required to do, and it brought me a kind of peace, the recognition that if Jesus could forgive those who did to him what they did, how could I hold a grudge against the people that did what little they did against me compared to what happened to Jesus who accepted the cross? So um, it's also a practical thing. It's not it's, it's unhealthy to hate anybody, and hate is a toxic poison that destroys everything that's good in the world. And you can't be the best person you, you want to be if you're holding grudges and you're filled with anger and bitterness. So those who, frankly, you know, didn't support me or didn't like me or might even hate me, and I understand that in politics it's not unusual, especially when you take strong positions, I would simply say uh, I understand, nothing personal. But uh, if you, you shouldn't really hate me so much because you hurt yourself, and uh, it's it's really not the way to live. And if you want any kind of inspiration on 
finding the right way to live, I would suggest to uh, take a look at the Bible, read it carefully, slowly, as I was able to do in prison, in ways where I, I hadn't done it before, because I just was so busy in the race of life that I didn't spend enough time in God's Word. And I must say, the biggest blessing that I received while in prison was the discovery that reading the Bible and kind of growing spiritually and treating it like daily exercise where you, you want to get yourself in good spiritual shape was a blessing to me, and it, and it, it made me so, feel so much less alone. And actually, it, over time, gave me a sense that not only was I not alone, but there was somebody with me that was ultimately going to guide the uh, outcome of what I was going through. And I truly believe I'm home because it was the hand of God that put together a variety of different circumstances and actually sent to me someone, a young man named Mark Vargas, who uh, was instrumental in, in working through the process to get President Trump to make the decision that sent me home. Wow. Um, would you talk a little bit more? You said, you know, you were so busy running the race of life. You were too busy, really, to kind of maybe focus on Bible reading. And we all are like that. We all have jobs and families and stuff, and we just get busy and we kind of neglect it. And then, you know, there are people who listen to the show that probably have a, a certain view of politicians and what it is that you you do on a daily basis. So what was it like to kind of be stopped for years and be in, in prison and read the Bible? And just like, what was it like to have to, to be stopped in running that, that race that you were running for so long? Well, it was, uh, it was a dramatic change of what I was used to. Um, but it was also something that, you know, it, it's going through the refiner's fire and burning the dross. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you go through that crucible of adversity there truly is something to how it can shape you. Now, it could break you. It could also make you. Now, I'm not suggesting that I'm so much of a better person than I was before I left. I like to think I'm better. I'm certainly less prideful, I think. And I know, but I mean, one area where I know I was guilty, and that's probably way too much pride. And uh, when you're, you're once on a high mountain, and then you're brought down to a low valley, and a deep, dark valley at that, and you're all by yourself, away from the people you love most in the world, like my daughters and my wife. And the road home is so far away, you can't even see the flicker of a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, all of a sudden, you know, I picked up the Bible and began to slowly and carefully read it and uh, and think about it. And, and I would spend a lot of time walking the track, thinking about the things that I was reading in the Bible, and I not only did I find comfort in it, but I, I found instruction and uh, pride, working on being less prideful. And, you know, when they take you away from everything you love in the world and you're put in a place like prison, that's a place that'll humble you. And uh, I think that it was very good, actually, because it kind of brought me back to my beginnings. You know, my mother and father never had any money. They They were working people. My dad was a factory worker and my mom worked and they didn't own a home. So it wasn't like I came from any kind of great place, but you know, when you come from a kind of a humble beginning like that and you get to a high place, it's very, I think human nature, you start to think maybe, you know, you're, you're better than you are, but you ain't so good really. Uh, Cause we're all basically mortal and we're all sinners and we're all flawed. And so when all of that's taken from you and you're put in a place like prison, it's a wake-up call, and again, this is a, a positive thing that, that happened for me. And it also was good because 
I was able to learn more about the afflictions of other inmates and the suffering that they go through. And seeing past them, looking past them in the visits when my family would come, I would notice other families and see their children, see their mothers, and and see the pain in the eyes of the mother. You know it's the mother because you can see the pain in the woman's eyes. And then you'd realize that there are a lot of other people, not just you, who are going through what you're going through. And I, I think that that was helpful because you can appreciate other people suffering. And then the portion that, you know, that, that so much of what embodies Jesus, and that is service, helping others. And I discovered that trying to just help people that were my colleagues in prison, even in little things, small things, brought me a joy that that uh, that was actually really uh, compelling. And uh, so I, I, I learned a lot about humility. I think uh, I, 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 I think I'm less prideful, but I, I'll tell you this. My big challenge now is to not forget those lessons. And my big challenge now that I'm home and I'm starting to get busy again is to stay focused and understand what the most important priority is for me as a person, and that is to stay close to God and continue to try to get draw closer. And my advice to anybody who's interested in hearing it is by reading the Bible slowly and carefully and, and doing it daily, I found uh, draws me, drew me closer to God, made me understand Him better, gives me a better sense of what His voice, where His voice is, and what He's actually trying to tell us. Um, and it's an invaluable lesson that I learned, and I would hope that others can find what I found. Yeah. Well, that's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm wondering. I think I think if we did the math right, it's 23 days now that you have been out of prison. Um, and I'm wondering. You know, you're talking about reading the Bible. I'm wondering about what Rod Blagojevich prays about. Well, I, that's good. And you know, I'm, that's a great question. I, I, I want to say this. I always believed in God before mm-hmm. this all happened. I, yeah. When I was governor, I prayed nightly. I prayed for guidance, uh, and even though. You know, I certainly was a person with a great deal of pride. I still mostly put my trust in God even then. But um, so, but I've learned even that on, on how to pray. I think I pray better. You know, Jesus is asked by uh, some of his uh, apostles, how do, uh, how do you pray? And he, he was pretty simple. He, he described it simply. You know, the, the, the Father knows what, what you want. And he instructed them in a very short, simple prayer. And the, the lesson I derived from that was that, you know, my prayers tended to be supplications, more supplications than they were actually expressions of gratitude. Mm-hmm. Always asking for things. Seek and you shall find, right? Mm-hmm. right. Asking it shall be given. Well, I was good at that and still am. So I pray for my, the health and safety of my children and my wife. And, you know, I still pray for guidance. I pray for wisdom. and and uh, But I, I find myself, and I, I think, and I know I'm right, thanking him more. And even in the darkest moments in prison when I was all by myself and we kept losing in court when we should have been winning, and he's one staggering disappointment, one staggering defeat after another, and my children are home and my wife, and uh, what we thought was going to be my release, it wasn't my release. When we thought we'd win, we kept losing. And trying to reassure them, even in those darkest moments, uh, as, I, as I drew closer to God because I would read the Bible um, I found myself thanking him more often. <clears throat> and again, even thanking him in defeat, because for 
some inexplicable reason, I was always strong. I never felt weak. And though you're always kind of, you got to deal with the doubt and the fear that it always chases you and try to keep a despair away. In spite of all of that, I always felt, I always felt strong. And, uh, and I always felt in the end, it all, it would all come out right. I'm going to continue to do the best I can, try to be a better person, try to help others, try to teach my children and my wife some of the things that I learned. And that, that's going to be something that's going to require, uh, you know, a discipline where, I need to sit down with them and carefully, slowly, gradually share you know, what I discovered with them. Because I, I learned this, too. Sometimes people come at you and they're too strong with it. And, they, and, and, and maybe their method doesn't really, you know, catch, doesn't quite catch you. It might actually repel you because they're, they're so strong in their creeds, but then you see how they live and their deeds don't match their creeds. Right. So I think one of the best... Uh, I think one of the biggest responsibilities for those of us who, like me, who uh, are, are proclaiming ourselves to be people of faith, Christians, is to live it and not just talk it. And, That's right. And you can lose a lot of people if, you know, you can lose people who would otherwise come to God by them seeing you and seeing how, yeah, you talk a good game, but you don't, you don't do what you say. So that's another uh, challenge that I have now moving forward is... Uh, you know, will I actually do the things what, that I say? Will I practice what I preach? Well, we can and relate to you on those things, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. You know, yes, yes. Uh, you, right. know, you you have that responsibility. That's right. Look yeah. up to you, right? Both of you. You got it. You got yeah. it. Well, well, just like us, and just like anybody, you know, it sounds like you got plenty to pray about. I appreciate that answer. And um, you know, I think a lot of people think about you know Rod Blagojevich, the governor, the politician, you know, guy that did almost eight years in prison, but. You know, I'd love to hear you speak a little more on, too, like, you know, Rod Lagojevich, the man, um, and regardless of whether or not people believe that you committed the crimes or not, um, you know, you must feel just as a as a man, which I think a lot of people can relate to, that, that you would be, you know, hugely misunderstood by a lot of people who say uh, disparaging things. And, and I'm wondering what you kind of just wish people knew about you as a man. Like, I'm thinking about you know, your wife and daughters and kind of the, the life you're walking ahead now? Oh, um, well, I'm lucky and I'm blessed. <clears throat> I have love in my life. I love my children. I love my wife more than I love myself. Um, and that love helped sustain me in, uh, during my time away, that and my faith in God. Um, not only do I have people to love, <clears throat> which is ins- inspirational and motivational, um, but they love me, and uh, so I'm not that alone. And but even if I was alone, I, I, here again, I, I I never really felt alone. I mean, in the in the in the physical sense, of course, I did, and there were tremendously wrenching times being away for so long, and and home being so far away. And and uh, but uh, even in in the darkest times, there was always a feeling deep inside that there was a that there was a higher power looking after me, and that you know. That had that had that gave me purpose, you know. Dr. Martin Luther King used to say, you know, the object of life is not what the Declaration of Independence promises, the pursuit of happiness. It is instead to do the will of God, and our responsibility for those of us who advocate that belief is to try to discern what God's will is. And uh, and after a period of time in prison, probably into the third year or so. You know, I began to get a better sense of what what his will might be, 
as we began losing in court again and thought we would win, you know, there had to be a reason for why this was happening. And I think it was several things. I think one, it's part of the testing period, which is very much what the Bible teaches, that, that, some, that some, we are tested and we are challenged and, and uh, our faith is challenged. And can we remain faithful in, in, the, in the midst of staggering defeats and disappointments? Or do you walk away from God and blame Him for your troubles? I never, ever felt that way. I, I never felt uh, anything but closer to Him during those dark periods. And frankly, just feeling like it was all part of a plan and that I needed to be patient. You know, Isaiah talks about those who wait on the Lord will uh, mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not grow weary. Um, and so patience was another lesson that I learned uh, in prison. I was compelled to learn it because I didn't have any choice. Right. But here again, I felt I felt a closeness. It's very hard to articulate exactly how, how this feels, but... But all I can tell you is I was never weak in there. I was always very strong and very confident. Even in the darkest moments, I felt eventually it would all work out right, and I still do. Mm, so Love good. It. So what's it like to be reunited with your family? I mean, practically speaking, like getting to know your girls again, getting to know your wife again, catching up on the years that you've missed and reconnecting. So like, what's your plan to reconnect with your family? Like, are you eating breakfast together, dinner together? Like, what are you doing for fun together? And how do you plan to like, try to at least make up? Yes. Well, no, that's a great question. Well, this is a work in progress. And uh, here again, you know, patience is is part of the one of the elements. You know, my younger daughter Annie, well, she was eight years old when I left, and uh, she's going to be seventeen in a few weeks. She's now a junior in high school, and she's a very different person than the yeah. little girl that I I left behind. And uh, I'm very proud of her. Both my wife and I, both our daughters, again, their mother is they're a reflection of their mother. And Patty raised them both as a single mother for the most part. Uh, my daughter Amy, 23, she's got a bachelor's degree from Edinburgh University uh, in marketing. Annie uh, is doing well in school, so you know, and she plays the piano. And uh, um, so they're, they're, they've been blessed to have a mother who's such a great mother who, who through the years of storm, has been able to uh, keep them focused on, you know, becoming good, trying to become good people. Um, one of the things I really want to do, and that is, again, I referenced it earlier, I want to, I want them to learn what I learned, and I want to, and I, I want to be the instrument that teaches them this. And so I want to begin a process where we spend maybe a half an hour every day just going over portions of the Bible and discussing them. And uh, my goal is to bring them along kind of slowly, not, you know, overload them. Uh, and they're busy. They're both very busy, especially mm-hmm. my younger one has to go to school. She left early this morning. I, I see her off every morning now with her mother a little before seven, and she comes home at four, and she's got a whole bunch of homework. Uh, so it, it probably will, this will be something that we'll start doing during spring break, which is coming up, and, and then kind of ease them into it without overloading them and chasing them away. Mm-hmm. But um, but the simple things are what matter. I just like I, I find myself, now that I'm home, finding it hard to leave them. Isn't that weird? I've been away from them for almost eight years, yeah. and now I, I'd rather just kind of sit in the TV room, let them watch their shows and, and read. I just like feeling like feeling them near me yeah. is very comforting. <laughs> and uh, 
pulling myself away is actually hard, and it's kind of ironic because they're here and I'm here, and and I've got a strange feeling that somehow my time is still limited, and I better get my time in with them because I have to go away again, and yet I don't. Mm-hmm. That's another kind of adjustment that I have to make. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're all good. They're all good. They're good adjustments. None of them are hard. And I, feel, I consider myself very fortunate and lucky, and, and I frankly think the future is very bright. That's I great. love that. Glad to hear that. Um, there are people listening to our conversation right now in prison. Um, there are so many yeah. uh, people, so many correctional facilities within our listening area here throughout the state of Illinois. Um, we've had the chance to do events at places like Stateville and, and others. Uh, first of all, I was just wondering what you would want to say to those people right now, hearing your voice. Uh, don't give up hope. There's a thing called hope time. They know what I'm talking about. And you got to have it because that makes it so difficult without it. So you get keep hope alive, as the Reverend Jesse Jackson is fond of saying. It's first and foremost uh, what I would encourage my fellow uh, inmates to keep. And then that, that would also say, uh, and I, I think most of them probably know, try to focus yourself on positive, constructive things every day and have goals. You need purpose. And if you lost all your purpose, remember the people that you love, and, and that, that alone will give you the purpose you need to kind of, you know, get through each day and, and try to get home. Um, for me, I must not forget that experience I've been compelled to have to endure. I must not forget the inmates and, and, and the strife and the struggles that they go through. I've learned the hard way, many hard lessons. Among them is we have a broken and, frankly, racist criminal justice system. And uh, I, I think, frankly, as I discern what my purpose might be, what God's will might be for me, I truly believe I must, it's not even a, an option, I must uh, add my voice and be as active as I possibly can be in the cause of criminal justice reform to try to make the system more fair, more just, uh, and more merciful. I mean, we have a real problem with over-sentencing. And I've talked about this example before, but it really shows how broken the system is. Joan Eyre, friend of mine I left behind, 26 years in prison, African-American man, young man. He's done 11 years, going on 12 already. As a first-time nonviolent drug offender. First-time nonviolent drug offender. The average rapist uh, gets a little more than four years in prison. Mm. That alone illustrates just how broken the system is. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's, there's thousands of examples like that. But the absence of mercy uh, is the absence of Christian charity. It doesn't exist with these sentences, and we've gone afoul in, this, in our country. But there are so too many people in prison today who really uh, are not a, a threat to the public. Um, what they need is correction, and what they need is something constructive to be able to work on, and then what they need is a place to go when they're left out of prison. Uh, because now, in way too many cases, once you're tagged as a felon, that F is a scarlet letter. You you can't get a job. Right. And so many of these guys are, they're you know they went to prison young. They came from communities where they were they had disadvantages to begin with. Uh, the family unit uh, was dysfunctional or, or non-existent. They didn't have any skills, and so they became drug dealers because that was what was the thing to do in that community where you can actually earn a living and actually have a chance to you know, get a taste of a better life. That was, that's one of the great ironies. But they have nothing to fall back on once they've made those mistakes. 
So there, there isn't enough instruction or correction within the prisons today. And I think they're going to discover that a lot of these guys, if they're given a chance, if someone puts faith in them, uh, they'll work even harder to prove themselves because they're going to be grateful for the confidence that somebody had to give them an opportunity to start their lives anew. So I hope to be active in issues like this, and I, 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 I'll do everything I can to be active because I feel like I must do that. I, I feel like this is part of what I think God would want me to do. Yeah. I'm wondering what you think about this idea, not from a political perspective or, uh, you know, even with reform or anything like that. Our uh, our radio station and with some partners, we've had the chance to be a part of a couple of, uh, you know, Christian music concerts in prisons in Illinois. And we've had some really meaningful connections with people doing time, like we said, in Stateville and some other places and plans for that to continue. I wonder what you think about the idea just of, you know, bringing hope-filled live music into prisons uh, even maximum security prisons, you know, when they let us. Oh, yes, absolutely. I can't imagine why anybody would be opposed to that. I think that's extremely important. Um, again, here, you know, I, I, I referenced the Bible, but the Bible in so many places, both the Old and the New Testament, talks about, you know, prisoners. Isaiah speaks of freeing the captives. Um, and... Uh, Someone Paul, remembering Paul those in prison too, Paul. instead of instead of forgetting them, uh, you know, remembering exactly. them, visiting them, right? That's exactly right. And uh, and uh, you know, the apostle Paul was uh, in he was no stranger to prison himself, right? So um, no, I think that uh, it, it's absolutely necessary, helpful if if you can bring christian music into the into the prisons to provide hope to the inmates and the songs are so inspirational i mean i i can sing amazing grace i spent a lot of time i had a little band when i was in prison and we would we'd sing some of gospel songs and mm-hmm. that was one of them take my hand precious lord was another lead me guide me when it was another um tell me you did some I, regular elvis songs though too right <laughs> yeah, i did I, well i did peace in the valley like elvis would have and yeah elvis did it a lot better than <laughs> I mean, all, uh, uh, all of that would, it would you know we had a chap we had you know they provide you uh an outlet for religious expression in prison the, the different denominations but you know m- m- more of the inmates were of the christian faith than uh, the other faiths mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and you can access the chapel and and the uh opportunities to go to the chapel were were significant, and there was reading materials there, and uh, music, uh, even even movies that you can watch. So, should there be more of it? Absolutely, and uh, I can't imagine why anybody would be opposed to it. But I suppose there's some kind of a civil libertarians who are saying there's a violation of church and state. Are they actually saying that? Not there, not there, too much. Just it's, a lot of the times, it's finding the right connections, and it's uh, you know more fun, about security, scheduling, yeah. security things yeah. like that. Um, well, I'll make a campaign promise to you. Next time I'm governor, we'll be sure that <laughs> wherever you want to go, we'll, we'll have right, our cool. people call your people. Uh, by the way, you're on you're on record as saying the food in prison was just absolutely horrible. So, what exactly was it? I'm sorry to bring this memory back. Well, this will please your listeners because taxpayers, you'll know that at least in this area, the federal government, there's no they're not wasting money on buying good quality food, uh-huh. um, <laughs> and it was. It was not a good. The, the quality of food was not good, and then it was prepared by other inmates who, um, you know, they did the best they could, but they're not exactly 
most of them were not exactly schooled in any kind of lessons in cooking. So the portions were small. The the, the quality of food is kind of, uh, you know, not the highest. Um, they rush you through the meals. So it's not, you know, you learn to eat fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it, it was very unsatisfying. However, um, that's another thing you learn. It's like it was not that big a deal to me. You know, I love ice cream. And um, I've been eating a lot of it since I've been home. I've got to watch it myself. But mm-hmm. I, I, once a week they let you buy ice cream at the commissary. I never would do it because I, I just felt like as much as I like it, for some strange reason I felt like maybe I just had to de- deny myself certain things that I like it while I was there because it's not going to make me happy anyway. Mm-hmm. And maybe I, I just need to sacrifice certain things that I like and just wait. Hmm. And so I would never let myself buy ice cream. It's really strange. I have a hard time explaining why that was um, until I got home. And so uh, um, there is that ice cream that the inmates can buy once a week. But generally speaking, the, the food the food there, uh, not so good. Now, they one of the colorful parts of that experience is that there's, um, there's a black market in, in the prisons I was in where Food that comes from the from the kitchen is smuggled out of the kitchen, and then it's sold on a black market around the the prison to inmates, and they can then eat more of it, or, or, mm-hmm. or they can prepare it for themselves with the limited uh, resources that are there, like a microwave. But uh, um, if you want to lose weight, I'm not recommending prison for anybody, but. If you're interested in losing weight, it's a good place to, to lose weight. <laughs> you know, speaking of ice cream, um, I, I don't know if this is, is new now that you've been back, but you're not all that far from uh, Winnetka. Have you had Grater's ice cream popular in Ohio? No. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. That's good. G-R-A-E-T-E-R-S, Yep, so just a little yeah. family jaunt up there to Winnetka, uh-huh. and uh, that's that's where you're going to want to go. Um, I, I, I understand... <laughs> That another thing that you didn't let yourself do was watch uh, the beloved Chicago Cubs. Did I did I get that right? Um, well, two reasons. Number one, there, you, you got that right. I, I, I kind of I didn't watch the Cubs as often as I would have otherwise uh, because it was heartbreaking for me. It was it made me homesick. You know, I, I, I we live not that far from Wrigley Field, and when I run from my house around to Wrigley Field and I come back, it's a seven-mile loop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been doing that for years since we've, been, we've lived here. And, but more than that, my, I grew up as a Cub fan and so as a young boy and used to go to the Wrigley Field before they had, way before they had lights. Yeah. And then uh, my daughter, Amy, my older daughter, you know, she was, I was kind of hoping to have a boy, and then we, got a, we had a girl. And by the way, when, after we had Amy, when Annie came, I was hoping we'd have a girl, not a boy. I didn't want a boy anymore. I wanted a girl. <laughs> Realize how good but they wanted, were. Exactly. <laughs> but the one thing, I, the reason I wanted a boy was I wanted him. To, I wanted to raise my son to share the love of the Cubs with with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when Amy came along, um, she was the one who who shared that love with me. And so she would go to Cubs games with me all the time. And she really understands and knows the game. She could you know, analyze the pitches. It's really fun. It was used to be so much fun for us when I was governor. She was a little girl just to watch the Cubs games. And, and you know, I'd say, ask her, what would you throw here, Amy? It's a two-in-one count. You got a man on second. <laughs> and uh, look who's coming up next. And she would know the players, and she would give me an, an analysis on what kind of a pitch the Cubs pitcher should throw. And, um, and so all those uh, experiences 
were profound memories for me. And then when the Cubs were on television in prison, especially in 2016 when they were great and they won the World Series, right. um, there, it was bittersweet. It was, it was, I'd, well, I'd see really failed and I'd be homesick. And I'd want very much to be with my daughter to watch the games. And when they, they, they got to the World Series against Cleveland, Amy wanted to come out on a Saturday and watch one of the games with me hmm. uh, in the visiting room, but they wouldn't allow it. Wow. Uh, and I, I tried to get permission, but that wasn't allowed. So she was disappointed, so she couldn't come out. But uh, I did see the last game of the World Series. You stayed you know, up late. Yeah, and that, that ninth inning, the dramatic comeback uh, um, after uh, the Indians had hit a home run at the top of the ninth to tie the game. Typical Cubs. <laughs> it looked like it was going to happen again. They were about to break your heart again, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, only that year was different. But um, the other thing in prison is that Baseball is the, the politics of the televisions are very significant because there's not a lot that the inmates have, and who controls the TVs is is a is a big political dynamic there. And it, it, if you're asking when there's fights and people you know get violent with each other, it's about it's either about the fans in the heat of the summer, it's over that, or it's about the TVs. <laughs> oh. <And> so, <laughs> right. Well, and a lot of and, people uh, probably assume that, you know, you went to this uh, pampering spa-like prison uh, for people who are, you know, uh, celebrities and things along those lines. But I, I've heard you say that, you know, maybe you're the only governor, uh, which, you know, not the only Illinois governor to serve time, but but the only governor who has been behind actual razor wire in a real prison, right? That's correct. My first 32 months in prison, I was behind the razor wire. And, you know, there were 900 inmates there. Uh, car- drug cartel members, gangbangers, drug dealers, bank robbers. There were men there who committed murder. There were con artists. Maybe 2% were the white-collar group, which would have included somebody like me. So it was a and, – and, and you lived – it was a prison. And the, the, the home that we – you know, the buildings that we slept in and lived in were squalid, squalid places, tomb-like, like you would have you'd see on television and movies. And mm-hmm. we had these little cells – Six foot by eight foot. That was my home. I slept on the top bunk, and uh, I would do push-ups sometimes in that little narrow space. When the other guy was out of the bunk, it'd be a way to exercise, and um, um, that was a real, real prison. Now, and then they limit your, they restrict your movements, and 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 there's there's the politics of the prison where you've got these these groups that people call, they call them cars, and you ride with one car or another. There's a, a great deal of segregation among races and ethnic groups, more for not not a pernicious motivation, but more for practical realities of trying to keep guys from fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want to be with your group. I, I, I never did that. Frankly, never felt I had to do it. I always felt somewhat a little bit. I, 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 there was, you know, they brought my life down so low and brought me to ruin like that. There was, I felt. I frankly feared nothing when I was in any of those prisons. It was more, uh, there was nothing they could do to hurt me any more than what had happened. Mm -hmm. And my focus was all about, you know, making, using my time as a time of preparation and trying to comfort my family and trying to get home to them. So I never feared anything along those lines. But, you know, inevitably, when you live with a bunch of guys like that for a long time in close quarters, once in a while there's going to be disagreements and sometimes conflicts and sometimes. In a place like that, you know, there there could, you, you know, fights will break out, and 
you know, they, uh, you know, one of the things they have that, that I learned early on was that when someone puts his boots on late at night, that means a fight's going to start. Hmm. And you got to watch a guy who puts a lock in a sock. Oh, because yeah. they, they use that as a weapon. Yeah. And, uh, and so some of the fights that I actually saw were actually, you know, very bad. And, uh, but, um, uh, again, I, I it, the, the whole experience is for a reason. And, I, you know, I think about it now, and I, I, it seems like it was 100 years ago. <laughs> and it and wasn't something. that long ago at all. 23 yeah. days. Yeah. Uh, we're about done here. We got to, Lindsay, what do we want to say about the hair thing? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, like, I don't know, you know, seeing a before picture and an after picture, and I just thought, oh, wow. So I'm wondering, was it stress? Uh, were you dyeing it before and it had to go natural? Both. I feel like it's great either <laughs> way and just kind of wondering. Yes. Well, uh, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> it was probably uh, maybe my sixth month into prison, and one of the guys was talking about. You know, Gov, I uh, always thought your hair, I thought you wore a wig. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, hey, man, there was nothing fake about this hair except the color. Yeah. Um, and don't call it black. I told him it was Sable Brown number 47D. There it is. Uh, is. Got to know what to buy at Walgreens, right? <laughs> right. But um, anyway, so, uh, well, they don't allow that. You can't have that. And, right. And that's understandable. So, okay. I, you know, we covered it up. You know, it's been covered up for, uh, you know, you know, a few years, and I never realized what was under it until I got my second haircut there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's fine. There it was. And I do the same thing. Uh, no, but they weren't using the clippers on you or anything. Well, yeah, both. You know, and you know, the, the, my last barber there, God bless him, my friend Jimmy Templeton, who, um, you know, was in there long, long sentence. Another example of a first-time nonviolent drug offender. He's just about at 20 years now that he's been in prison. And uh, he's the he was the barber at the camp. He's worked his way from the higher securities levels down to the camp, and he's he'll go home um, in less than a year. It's been a long, hard journey for him, but he was the last barber there. But, you know, these guys are not trained as barbers. They're, they were, you know, drug dealers and other things. And uh, so you do the best you can with them, you know, and uh, they're the ones, you know, so... And, and you know, I'm not governor anymore, so I can't complain. It's just pretty much, uh, you know, work with them, get the best haircut you can get. But frankly, who cares? Even there, <laughs> that didn't even matter. Frankly. Right? Yeah. It didn't really, it didn't matter at all. Um, but, but it's all part of the past. And uh, let's see, let's see whether or not I can actually be what I hope and think I am. And let's see if I can keep the faith and be strong moving forward to. Uh, to try to discern God's will and to do God's will and to be an instrument for good purposes. This is what I must do, and I must keep myself focused to do that while I try to build a better life for my family. I have a lot of catching up to do in that area as well. Well, you're hearing it straight from Rod Blagojevich. We appreciate you uh, spending all this time with us. There's some, so, much, so much to think about, so much meaning, so much uh, substance for prayer, and we just, uh, we just appreciate uh, the time you spent with us this morning. Well, thank you, Jonathan, Lindsay, and I hope maybe one day I get a chance to meet you and maybe, who knows, we could visit a prison together and bring a little joy to somebody's life. I really yeah, like that idea. You, you know, there's people got all kinds of opinions about you. We know that you have your your friends and your loyalists and uh, and we are people that love you. God bless you. Appreciate you. Thank you very much.